Alright, man, welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 274. Jason Lingren is with me, and the gentleman who caused quite a stir last time, still getting email from months ago. I think it was September we had him that we call under the pseudonym KL. I'm gonna lay down a couple things and just to get it out of the way, Jason, do you have anything you're gonna add in or can I just do this and go straight in? Go straight in. I have three documents that KL has provided. One of them is about collateralization. That will refer to the last episode we did. Two of them are the breakdown of hour one that we're doing in this episode, 272, and hour two of 272. They are color-coded, but uh, people are going to ask, and actually, I'll just say, welcome, KL. Do we want to hold this email address until we get to the membership area? If I give it out now, you will be absolutely bombarded. Yeah, wait wait for the uh, second hour is fine. All right, so let me let me frame this out. The documents that I have are going to link only from the membership area, and this isn't about anything other than sheer volume. That's what this is about, and I'm not kidding. People have no idea. Uh, certain episodes, we get the volume of contacts that get sent and have to be dealt with. Um, that is the sole reason, and that is the sole reason the email will be given out on the other side. It's simply a way to try to make things manageable. Anyhow, uh, I already said it. Welcome, KL. These documents are color-coded. There are three predominant colors, black, red, and blue, and there is some yellow highlighting. Can you just clue people into what the color coding means? Sure. The color coding I use with all of my documents normally is this. Red signifies what pertains to the real man or the flesh and blood man. That's why it's red. It also pertains to private jurisdiction, what we say public versus private. The blue always refers to the statutory jurisdiction or the all caps person or the at sea jurisdiction. Black is just normal typeface setting. Doesn't mean one thing either way, just what I'm writing. Okay. Okay. So just pay attention to what color the words are. We'll tell you what jurisdiction or what, you know, I'm coming from, what context I'm coming from. And let me just say one thing. You always say words have meaning. Right. I, I've been using that phrase for 10, 15 years. Words have meaning. And you also talk about Latin a lot. Right? Why does the Pope use Latin? Well, Latin is very important because the word meanings never change in Latin. Okay. Versus, let's take American English, right? Words can have different meanings depending on the context you're talking about. I'll give you an example. The actual term is called homograph, H O M O G R A P H. And I have some definitions on page 10 of the first handout. I'll just read words with the same spelling but different meanings. I always use the example of the word orange. It can mean a color or a fruit depending on the context that is being used. You know, with the government, person can mean natural person, artificial person, state can mean one of the 50 geographical states. It can mean a corporate state. Uh, the word United States has three, maybe now four different legal meanings. So you need to know the word homograph and understand that words in the English language can have different meanings. And that's usually, you know, the legal ease that the lawyers use and the judges use. They use the same words. We think we know what the meaning is, but in their system, it has a different meaning. I'm sure you would all, you would both agree with that. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think the main, the main thing that I would reiterate that you just said is if we're speaking in English, you may not understand the definition. There can be many, or there can be very specific depending on usage as in a courtroom. Or 
you also stated that Latin is pretty much static. Uh, the definitions and how they're used and what they mean have been laid down for presumably hundreds of years, yes. which is why it's a foundational tool. Centuries. And that's why they use Latin a lot, because the word has never been changed. The meaning of the words have never been changed in Latin. So that's oh. why it's, it's that important. All right. So uh, do we want to do the tee up? Do you want us to read the first three bullet points and set you up to jump into document number one? Sure. Go ahead, Jason. First three bullet points and the and the Taylor, the tail yes. paragraph there. The U.S. Supreme Court cases that prove the existence of the Union state citizenship and how the court has ruled the 14th Amendment citizenship does not include the Bill of Rights. Second, Summary of the Coup d'etat, March 9th, 1933, national emergency that brought in the temporary war powers government to include military law. And the third, Article 1 versus Article 2 versus Article 3 of the Constitution discuss trust diagrams. Imagine a fast food chain is facing bankruptcy, so it gets all the local franchise owners together and they pledge their, to their customers and their customers' assets as co-signers and collateral for the backing of the fast food chain debt. That's what they are doing to us since the date of 1871. So these three bullet points and that little tail paragraph that we just read are basically an overview or a breakdown. You can view it, but I'm just going to hand it straight to you, KL. Where do you want to okay. jump in? All right. You know, in podcast 256, I went over this, but I'm going to say it again. There are two governments in America. And there always have been operating at the same time, just like in the matrix. Two governments, two different jurisdictions, two kinds of citizenships, two kinds of persons, two kinds of money, artificial, you know, lawful money. So you have to understand that these things, it isn't one or the other. It isn't that it's a democracy or a republic. It's both. But you're either in the republic or in the democracy, but they're going on at the same time. Now, go back with you guys in the handout two, page six diagram, and I'll just explain this for the other people. It's a diagram of the first constitutional trust, 1789, where the 13 original states were the grantor of this trust, and this is where they form the federal government. Now, the federal government, I refer to as an HOA, Homeowners Association, because the whole concept of the form of the Constitution in 1789 was to form a company that did international commerce and it also restructured the debt at the same time. I think, again, we went over this in 256, but the important thing is that they, they hired a company to do the 19 enumerated powers, to do the international commerce, because all the states you know, still wanted to do business with France, England, and this kind of stuff. So there had to be this business arrangement internationally for this whole country new country thing to work, okay? Right. And in the, the diagram, if you're looking at it, whoever creates controls, I'm sure you've heard that one for more than one guest. So the creators, the 13 states, they get to control what kind of law form is going to be in this trust. They choose the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all right? And again, it was about the restructuring of the debt, form a company to do international commerce. The beneficiaries of that trust are going to be we, the people, and the posterity of, posterity of those people. The trustees, the fiduciaries of that trust is going to be the homeowners association or what people called the federal government at that time. But the name of the company was called United States. So, again, this is very confusing, you know, with 
United States is the federal corporate is the corporate company that's taking care of things for the United States of America. Now, the other thing I want to say is all citizens at that time were considered private. There were no public citizens, so the default level was private. It's never really said, other than if you read the writings of the Founding Fathers, they'll explain to you what the word public and private meant. And I want to just touch on that one for a little bit. Public versus private. Anything registered in the public domain, like your car, like your house, you're all capstane, is public property. Now, pro, you have a TV. Jason, same thing. He paid for it at the store. You have legal title and you have equitable title. Equitable title is use and possession of the thing, and the legal title is controlling interest. So if someone were to take it from you, you know, that would be theft. You could press charges, that kind of stuff. But when you take property and you register it in the public, and the word register comes from the word regal, and regal means give to the king. So whenever you register any property, you're handing over legal title to the government agency or the person you're doing business with. You always retain equitable title, which is use and possession of it. Again, just like your car. You get to use your when you when you buy a car, you get to use it, you possess it, no problem. Right? You can do anything to it, you can put in a new stereo, you can have it painted. But the legal title or controlling distance interest is held by the state, and that's why they can legally tell you you have to have insurance, you have to have plates, you have to get it registered every year, that kind of thing. So let okay. me let me jump in real quick here. So if you register a thing, correct me if I get this wrong. You're going to know that what you just said has happened because you're going to get a certificate. It's been certified. Is that correct? Yep. And that certificate of title on a car that you get, that's proof you have equitable title. Okay. Use and possession of it. So it is a true title. But the point is, it's telling you you're in a trust, that you're beneficiary of a trust. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go back to page one, two governments in America operating at the same time, the Republic. You know, which is a government for the American nationals. That's what they were called back then. The private citizens were called American nationals. And the second government is a uh, corporate trust democracy charged with providing the 19 enumerated services for the states that deals with international commerce. I think I just went over that. So the current form of government found in every state today, you know, state of New Hampshire, state of Texas, state of Louisiana, is seemingly Republican in form but is ultimately municipal because every such state, you know, is a body politic, not a geographical area. So again, we get into the definition of state. 1874, there was an act of June 30th, 1864, and be further enacted that whenever the word state is used, shall be construed to include the territories in the District of Columbia, and a person is no longer a people, it is a corporation. So again, in America, in English, Words can have different meanings. So a state, every time you hear, especially the government, refer to the word state, they're usually talking about the body politic, the corporate state of Louisiana, state of Illinois, that kind of a thing, not the geographical state. So you always got to pay attention to the context of what the words are being used means. Every state has been uh, turned into a political subdivision of the District of Columbia, which was a municipal corporation as of 1871 and whose municipal law form is Roman civil law. Roman civil law equates to exclusive territorial, personal and subject matter jurisdiction over its residents. U.S. citizens who do not physically reside in the District of Columbia are treated as residents of that municipality. 
for legal and tax purposes. Does that sound exactly what's going on today? Right. And there are no exceptions, right? This is nope. every state. Correct. State okay. of. Remember? Yep. Old thing. State without Louisiana. State without Texas. You got to pay attention to what the word of means in their <laughs> uh, jurisdiction versus your jurisdiction. So wait a minute. You mean Bill Clinton wasn't totally pulling our leg? <laughs> he was actually correct. Because yeah. his, it has three meanings. You know, past, present, and future. <laughs> so he was being a smart ass, but he was absolutely being truthful. Which, which you know, pretty hard to imagine, isn't it? Him being truthful. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I'm going to present this in a chronological order because that's just the way I like doing it. And it's on paper so you can see exactly what happened as the time went by. It's helpful. And let me just state, this is part of the beef. Look, all these people with legal ideas, I'm not interested in getting emails anymore. What Jason and I are doing is looking for agreement and we're starting to find it. But this chronological idea is a big deal because if you have a grievance, you damn well better know the cause of the grievance. And to me, the timeline starts to lay down undeniably what has happened. So sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. Somebody wants to to say, hey, what about this case? I said, well, when was the case? Oh, it was right. 1895. Oh, back in 1895, this was going on then. So that's why I use the chronological order, because you can go back in time and figure out what jurisdiction or what was going on with the Supreme Court and everything else based on the timeline, right? You just can't say, oh, I'm free to travel. Well, I got news for you. There's a Supreme Court case that says you're not. So <laughs> it all depends on the time frame you're looking at, okay? 800, Charter of the First Holy Roman Empire. That's when everything gets started. 1213, treaty between King John and the Vatican. King John agrees that England and Ireland will be fiefs of Rome and that his crown, you know, basic authority will be forfeited to Rome. Thereafter, all lands explored and claimed on behalf of the British monarch, monarchs is custody of Rome. So, so let, let me, I, I, I got to cut in here, Kale. Yeah. Do you have, why, why would a king do this? Do you have any idea? He said that he wanted to go to heaven. And the Pope said, in order to go to heaven, you're going to have to do this. That was how the game was at that time. He said, you're going to have to give me all this stuff. I'll forgive you because I'm the vicar of Christ, right? Uh, So I can forgive you. I'm acting like Jesus. And then thus you will be allowed to go to heaven. All right. Go ahead. So 1215, the Magna Carta. I think everyone knows that. That's kind of used the founding document that everyone uses is the initial you know, guaranteeing fundamental rights and privileges for everybody. In 1302, Pope comes along, his first papal bull. Again, I have no other guests that address these kinds of things. It's called Unum mm-hmm. Sanctum. He declares himself the trustee of the Global Estate Trust, and basically, again, saying he was the vicar of Christ. Because in the Global Estate Trust, you know, Jesus came down, he died uh, for the benefit of all of us. So in the trust structure, again, we are the beneficiaries, Jesus was the trustee, and now the Pope is saying, well, since Jesus isn't here, I'm the vicar of Christ, and I'm going to take over the trustee duties. So this is his claim since 1302. 1606, First Virginia Charter. King James allows the Virginia Company to govern the colonies. The council was headquartered in England, headed by Lord Delaware. So the point here is that our first government in the colonies was run by a company you know, that was run out of uh, actually England headed by Lord Delver. So again, we, we start with a company is going to run the government of the colonies. Company really run by England. So it really wasn't even our own people at that time, our own representatives. I mean, you know, this gets into the 
representation without, you know, taxation without representation later. But it shows you again, there's always a company that comes in first to start handling all of these business affairs for the for the people. Next date, 1666, the Sespa Trust sets up by, of course, the Pope, sets up Roman inferior trust in England to allow management of property belonging to unknown survivors of the Black Death and the Fire of London. So they had this great catastrophe, play going on, fire, everybody's dying, property's being destroyed. So the Pope comes in and says, we're going to presume they're all dead, and I'm going to handle all their estates for them. And now they're going to have to come back into court and prove you know, they're the lawful owners before they can have uh, the property and everything back. But in essence, that's exactly what's happening today, that they've taken over the estates and you have to come back and prove you're alive because you're presumed dead. I'm sure you've heard this before. So next big uh, date, 1789, the Constitution is formed. Article 4, Section 2, Clause 1 has to do with state citizenship. So every citizen is a citizen of their respective state. So you're uh, an Illinoisan, a Texan, a Floridian. And again, the citizenship is private. And they're referred to as American nationals back at that time. The only public citizens are due to come out of the District of Columbia because that was created by the legislature, by statute, not under Article 3, but Article 1. So those persons are under a different jurisdiction. Now, the rest, I'm going to start getting into these Supreme Court cases to kind of prove my point. 1818, U.S. versus Bevins established two separate jurisdictions within the United States of America, the federal territorial zone, the geographical union states jurisdiction. So again, they're telling you there's two separate jurisdictions, one's federal, one's union state. Now, when I say union state, that means private. When you say federal or territorial, that's the public side. And again, if you look at your uh, handouts, you guys, blue is federal, union state is red. Next case, 1821, Cones versus Virginia. I'm just going to quote them. It's clear that Congress, as a legislative body, exercised two species of legislative power, one limited but extending all over the Union, and the other an absolute exclusive legislative power over the District of Columbia. The legislative power in the District of Columbia exists independently, and the legislative powers of the state can never conflict with because it can never operate within the Union States. So this one is very important because they're telling you they're distinct and separate. Article 1, Congress has legislative power over the District of Columbia, the federal zone, the territory, the district, the ones that create the U.S. citizens. That's the jurisdiction for that entity. Then you have the Union State, which is private, okay? And they can't mix. They're separate, right? So so the only time that would ever... I mean, I'm trying to put this together. So clearly most of us are told we are federal citizens of the mm-hmm. United States. But if you were a person like we've met them that have become state citizens, is that really the real differentiation here is whether yes. you're a citizen of one or the other? Yes. And if okay. You, I know you don't have my paper from the last time in front of you. It said I was a union state citizen. That's Got what it. it was claiming. So it puts me in a different jurisdiction. You see how it all ties together. So just to clarify, um, we've had people on who have held up the idea of becoming a state citizen only as one of the paths here. Would you agree that that is a legitimate path? Absolutely. 
Okay. 1822, the Secret Treaty of Verona, Article 1. The high contracting powers being convinced that the system of representative government is incompatible with monarch principles as the sovereignty of the people of the divine right, the Pope and his fellows, we engage mutually in the most solemn manner to use all efforts to put an end to the system of representative governments. So they're stating in their article wow. of this treaty that we don't like what those Americans are doing over there and we've got to try to put an end to it. That's wow. what it says. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. 1857, the famous Dred Scott decision. Basically, it was about a slave suit about it. 10 years earlier in 1847. The court ruled slaves were not American citizens of the United States and therefore had no standing to sue in federal court, which is absolutely correct. African slaves were not citizens because they were not born in one of the several states. The real issue was that they may apply to become naturalized and become citizens of the, their respective United States. But at the time, they were kind of left out in the wind. They had no citizenship. Well, they didn't have because they weren't born here. That's why. All right. So you can imagine how this was played in today's with the TV and whatever. This is why and how the 14th Amendment came about. And I'll get into that in just a little bit here. All right. 1861, the Civil War starts. You know, the you, you missed 1859. Out. That gets back to the old stuff. The United States Company, the one company that was running the United States of America is goes bankrupt. They don't have to pay the $90 million that they have created, not the Union States, but the company running it. So Lincoln declares them bankrupt. You know, they walk out, the, the states say, we're not paying that debt. We're not signing on to that debt. That's your debt, original 13. The 20 of us over here, you know, we're going to form our own country and we'll do things ourselves. So I, I can fully understand why they said, up yours, we're out of here. Right. What it's, you're pointing out here is one of the main causes for, for what you're about to cover, right? The Civil War. Yeah. That this this is what you never see in the history books, just to make a point. They tie it to slavery and all these other things, but nope. pay attention to what was just said. It was about the debt. It was about signing on to a ninety million dollar debt when you you know, you weren't liable for it at the time because you're new to the union, but now because of international rules, the debt has to be restructured, so we need more people to sign on or more collateral so more money can be lent out to the, the company that's running the United States of America. That's really what it's about, plain and simple. They use slavery and use the Dred Scott case to implement uh, changes that they want done, but I truly believe for sure the biggest reason was uh, signing on to the, the debt issue. Now, now go back and listen to the song The Day They Drove Old Dixie Down and see if you can see a little further into what they're talking about. Yeah. So a couple years later, Lieber Code comes into effect. Basically, because there's no Congress, no federal government, no homeowners association, Lincoln assigns the military to perform those duties temporarily. So all D.C. federal territorial citizens at that time would be under military jurisdiction because the military is now running things right? Just run the D.C. District of Columbia. So 1864, the act I previously spoke about and be it further enacted that whenever the word state is used, it now shall be construed to include the territories in the District of Columbia. A person is no longer a people, it is a corporation. So they start changing the definition of words yeah. to suit them. Yeah. Okay, now they can do that because this only applies in the district, in the territory statutory it's for artificial 
it's for everybody in that jurisdiction. It does not apply to American nationals, to union state citizens. Do you see the difference of the jurisdiction issue? Yeah. Okay. 1865, Civil War ends, no treaty signed. The Homeowner Association, the United States went bankrupt. Again, a new one is formed around 1871 called the United States of America Incorporated, and that's a Vatican corporation out of Delaware. 1867, Congress creates five military districts. Again, this is when the military is handling the federal government duties. These commanders appoint judges to have tribunals to deal with rebels. This created a new law form called Presidential Admiralty. These courts displayed stars and tribes with heavy gold fringe, just like they are today. Presidential Admiralty, President is Article 2, executive power. They were created by Article 1, but everything's run by Article 2. Blue, because it's statutory, it's artificial, it only applies to the district, does not apply to national. But in the war, okay, just like now with the emergency that's going on, they can arrest rebels, belligerents, and enemies of the state, try them under military tribunals, and have full force and effect of the Constitution behind them. 1868, the 14th Amendment is ratified. Again, that was a thing where they told the states to come back in. They had to do that. They had to ratify it. So is it you know, truly ratified? Probably not, but it's treated as if it really is. So it nullifies the Dred Scott decision we talked about. Article 4, Section 2, citizens, or that citizenship is broadened and enlarged. becomes citizenship of the United States. And that becomes dominant and superior to their union state citizenship. And a 14th Amendment citizen is basically a national or what I call a statutory citizenship because it came out of the legislature. It was created there. 1871 is what the next one's supposed to be. It's missing a one. Organic Act of 1871, Washington, D.C. now becomes incorporated. A new constitution of trust is formed. And that's on um, page six of the other handout that you can look at. It's now called the Constitution of the United States of America. The one in 1789 was called the Constitution for the United States of America. I know people have heard these phrases and what it means. It basically means there's two different jurisdictions. The initial constitutional trust is got the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Okay, it's for Union States, private Americans. The one formed in 1871, it was formed by the legislature again. It's public, it's public citizens. The law form they use now is Roman civil law. It's a different jurisdiction. So it depends on what trust you're in or your entity is in or what you're operating under that, that basically shows what jurisdiction you're under. So I always look at it as a trust thing because that's the easiest thing to understand. But if you want to say jurisdiction, Trust, it's the same thing in terms of you've got to pay attention to where you're conducting business, what entity is conducting business. Is the real man doing this or is it the, they consider it's the straw man doing it? Well, if you're the straw man, then you're in a certain jurisdiction. If you're considered a union state citizen, that's a different jurisdiction. Did one constitution replace the other or are they working side by side and it depends upon which jurisdiction you're working through? Side by side, it's the matrix. It's going on at the same time. You, Jason, the real man, have constitutional bill of rights if you can prove you're a union state citizen. If you have a bank account or have a mortgage, the person that mortgage is under is going to be under the other jurisdiction, the statutory public jurisdiction. 
it depends on what you're doing. If you're going to do commerce, you need an artificial entity, plain and simple. And again, we had a talk earlier between us that that's one of the more critical things, at least that I think we think, is that to conduct commerce everyday stuff that everyone does, you need an artificial entity because they will not recognize the real man. They're taught not to. They're told not to. And basically, legally, they cannot recognize the real man. They can't recognize an artificial person. So what you do is you just got to create an artificial person that you're controlling and they're not controlling. You're controlling. So you can continue to do your everyday stuff that you've always done, like have a job with a corporation or have a bank account, buy houses, buy cars, all of that kind of stuff. Going to move on. 1871 slaughterhouse cases. A lot of people refer to these. There's, there's a bunch of cases having to do with the Butcher's Union down in New Orleans. Sounds familiar, Jason? I don't know if you've ever heard of all these. Butcher's Union sued under the 14th Amendment due process clause because what happened was the city said all of these things, people are getting sick. We're going to combine them all into one and we're going to move them out of the city because in the city it's too dirty and whatever. So, of course, all these Butcher's Union sue that, hey, this is my business. I want to continue doing it. But the mistake they make is they sue under the 14th Amendment clause. In the initial uh, ruling, I think they actually win most of the, the state cases and then the appeals cases. But when it gets to the Supreme Court, the dissenting opinion states that privileges and immunities under the 14th Amendment, United States citizenship, do not include the Bill of Rights, only to citizens of the several states, and that U.S. citizens were clearly distinct from citizens of the several states. So again, you've got the Supreme Court telling you there's two different citizenships going on. And that certain Bill of Rights pertain to certain citizens, and the Bill of Rights do not pertain to the other citizens. Yeah, so much for a user's manual. This is like the ultimate sleight of hand. Even yes. when you consider they've won all the way down, it comes down to opinions, which could go either way at the top. So this right. very critical idea gets decided by a majority. Uh, it's it's a shell yes. game, man. Yes, and what makes it harder is you know up to. 1871, everything got ruled. Everyone had the Bill of Rights, Union State Citizenship. And now, up till 1871 to 1938, you're going to have one court rule one way, and then the court can rule another way. So it gets confusing as to what's going on because you got different rulings that you can pick and choose from. So I'm going to kind of go run through that time frame. 1873, U.S. versus Anthony. The term resident and citizen of the United States is distinguished from a citizen of one of the several states, and that the former is a special class of citizen created by Congress. That's the statutory U.S. corporate citizenship. The 14th Amendment recognized that the individual can be a citizen of one of the several states without being a citizen of the United States. Again, just another thing to telling you two different citizenships going on at the same time. 1875, United States versus Crucian. We have in our political system a government of the United States and a government of each of the several states. Each one of these governments is distinct from one another, and each has its citizens of their own. That one pretty much spells it right out in plain English. Same thing I've been saying. Well, it starts to show the foul situation we find ourselves in now where each of these supposed state governments is in lockstep. They, they, they make controversies for us to all get hooked on, but basically they all did the same thing at the same time, showing yes. that there is an overarching control, but I don't want to get off track here. Sorry. All right. 1883, McDonald v. Jordan. 
He was not a citizen of the United States. He was a citizen and voter of his state, meaning Union State. One may be a citizen of a state and yet not be a citizen of the United States. 1884, Juilliard versus Greenman. The federal government is a government for delegated powers, supreme within its prescribed fear. Well, that's the federal territory. That's D.C., but powerless outside of it, meaning outside the union is outside the district. They're separate entities, separate jurisdictions. 1886, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. Supreme Court rules a corporation is a person under the 14th Amendment, Section 1. Bingo. What does that lay in the groundwork for? That's in 1886, and we haven't even formed sole corporations with the birth certificate yet. That'll be, what, another 20, 30 years, 40 years, and they already laid the groundwork for it. 1894, Caja versus U.S. The laws of Congress have force only in the District of Columbia. That's the statutory. 1895, this is a big case, Pollock v. Farmers. Court rules the income tax of 1894 is unconstitutional for natural private persons, but you could tax income derived from a corporation, i.e. like the interest that you might have got from corporate stock. And this is the case that was used as the foundation for the 16th Amendment. And it just went by 5-4. So it just, as you said, Crow, squeaked by, and then they used this case as the absolute foundation for the 16th Amendment. 1900, Maxwell v. Dow. Uh, this guy's arrested, tried, and convicted of burglary, but is never indicted by a grand jury. He sues under the 14th Amendment due process clause. The court rules the 14th Amendment privileges and immunities do not include the Bill of Rights. So if you're claiming <laughs> you're a U.S. citizen, or the words they use as citizen of the United States, you do not have the Bill of Rights. Unreal. Period. Unreal. Period. I mean, this, 20, 20 cases will say the same thing. Crazy. 1901, Downs versus Bidwell. The court ruled that Congress has unlimited legislative power over the territory. Okay. The court states the term United States has a broader meaning than when used in the Constitution. And it includes all territories subject to the jurisdiction of the federal government wherever located. Now, again, I think I've said enough cases where you start thinking to yourself, Crown strategy now becomes how to get several states legally considered as territories to get total control. Because, again, all of these court cases keep telling you that they have control over the territories, right? A separate jurisdiction than from the union state. So how do we get the states where the union state people are? to be considered territories. I will tell you later how, all right? Well, the new incorporated franchise states become de facto conquered military territories after March, 1933. That's why that, what happened on that day is so important. Now the 1905, if you ever heard of the Lochner era, uh, that's a bunch of cases for what, about 20, uh, 33 years. The court rules in favor of the privileges and immunities and the eight bill of rights are, are under the 14th amendment. So now, Court was swinging one way, and now for 33 years, the court starts swinging the other way, where their interpretation is, hey, you do have the Bill of Rights, even though you're a United States citizenship, a 14th Amendment citizenship. So much for precedent, right? Right, right. So, well, that's why precedent today you can only use from 1938 on. If you try to use a case prior to 1938, they won't listen. They'll throw it out. Uh Can you see why they throw it out? Uh, Of course, because they got what they wanted. They got what they wanted. So they had to they had to arrange things again to get things to go the other way. Things are went their way for a while. Now they went the other way. Now they gotta figure out how to get control total control back. 
hell of a lot of effort to make a rotten apple look brand new, fresh off the tree. It's the ultimate kind of dishonest, I don't even know what to say about it, just constantly moving the goalposts. Yes. And that's why it's confusing when people bring up cases when I ask them again, what, well, when was that case? 1906? Well, that was different than that. The Lochner era, they were, they were ruling in favor of the Bill of Rights. See, so, you, but again, you cannot cite that case in today's state courts. They won't take it. It has, it has to be after 1938. So the next case is, to me, the most important case and the most cited case ever in history. It's called Hale versus Henkel. It's been quoted over 1,600 times, and that was from years ago. I'm sure it's been quoted even more. The court rules there is a distinction between private, natural persons and artificial persons. A difference, distinction. The right of the individuals are restricted only to the extent that they have been voluntarily surrendered by the citizenship to the agencies of government. So what it's telling you is you have to give consent to them in order to get the jurisdiction, right? And it's yeah. telling you that there's two different citizenships. Well, it's also poppycock, but we'll just sidestep that. Yes. People are tricked. People are tricked and they're bamboozled, but go ahead. Yeah, 1908, 20 versus New Jersey. Court rules the 14th Amendment privilege and immunities do not include the price. 1913 Federal Reserve Act, I think we can, uh, I'll just skip a little bit about that. 1914 Hendrick versus Martland. A U.S. citizen upon leaving the District of Columbia becomes involved in interstate commerce as a resident, does not have the common law right to travel as a citizen of one of the several states. Right there, a 14th Amendment U.S. citizen does not. Now, a Union state citizen does. See the difference? Yep. But they'll rely on this case for precedence when they want it. Grushaver versus Union Pacific, another big case, 8-0, upheld the 16th Amendment. Congress has the authority to tax corporations. All of the federal district territory privileged income from those corporations. Now, 16th Amendment, you can tax corporations because it's a federal privilege. Can't tax the real man, the flesh and blood man, but the all caps sold corporation under the Constitution, under the 16th Amendment, you can tax. So which one are you? Which one do you want to be? Is <laughs> the real question. Well, in reality, we're both, and but one well, of those we were. Agree. See the problem. Get back to the Hale versus Henkel. You right. voluntarily consented to be the all caps name by filling out a ten forty. You filled it out. You determined how much tax you owe. You took the standard deduction benefit, and but taking the benefit puts you in that trust agreement contractually. You are the one that did it to yourself. That's true, but no yeah. one understood, and that will Correct. never go away. But I'm starting to realize more and more that it's more important to succeed at being free than it is at pointing out what's right and what's wrong. Absolutely. That's that's so far in the rearview mirror, it really doesn't matter anymore. Right. It really doesn't. The freedom is worth everything. Yep. Stop the arguing. And, and that's what Kent Cousins really, I think, more or less was trying to get to, is stop the arguing and pay attention to what you can do for yourself. Don't focus your energy on blaming others. You know, focus your energy on fixing your own uh, citizenship issue. That's how I, I interpreted him. That's all. Yep. Okay. Trading with the enemy act. Uh, I'll wait and kind of maybe go over that later if we can. 20, 1927 to Cheryl Reed Jordan. There's a citizenship of the United States and a citizenship of a state. Can't get any plainer than that. 1929 Belmont versus town of Gulfport. Taxpayers are not the de jure state citizens. Obviously, 
because they're so corporations. They are under different jurisdiction. Go down to the bottom of the page, 1935, Colgate versus Harvey. The governments of the United States and each of the several states are distinct from one another. The rights of a citizen under one may be quite different from those which he has under the law. I know these are repetitive, but it's just over and over and over telling you the same thing. 1936, Wheeling Steel Corporation v. Fox. Therefore, the U.S. citizen residing in one of the states of the Union are classified as property and franchises of the federal government as an individual entity. That's the definition the uh, IRS 26 USC code uses. 1936, U.S. v. Valentine, the only absolute and unqualified right of a U.S. citizen is to reside within the territorial boundaries of the United States. The territory, statutory jurisdiction, U.S. citizen. 1938, these are the two cases that reversed the Lochner area. This is the, what changed everything. This is when they brought in the federal rules of civil procedure. This is when they got rid of common law. The two cases, uh, both cases, the court rules, the Bill of Rights are not included in the 14th Amendment privileges and immunities. The Erie Railroad case and the U.S. v. Caroline products. All common law rights are now gone. All cases now under the federal rules of civil procedure and U.S. Code 1 through 50. <clears throat> All persons, full corporations, are enemy quasi-trustees of the system. And then I put in here, only a true beneficiary can bring a claim against a trust. So the... All camps name is the trustee of the trust, which means you're the payee. You're the guy that's always got to pay. The beneficiaries of those trusts are usually the state governments or the federal government. Now, in trust law, and I'll go over this a little later, an hour or two, too, that the, the beneficiary is the only one that can bring a claim against the trust a beneficiary, not the trustee. So you have to assert your claim that you're the beneficiary in court, no matter who, what's going on, whether you're getting sued, you're suing or whatever, and this is why Alfonso's works, what he does works, because when he does a counterclaim, what's counterclaim? He's claiming he's the beneficiary of the all caps name, and he has the higher right over the prosecutor or the state of uh, New Jersey, I think he's in. So he wins strictly based on the counterclaim affidavit, again, he's swearing testimony that basically he's the beneficiary and not them, and they would have to disprove that in order for them to win the case and basically that's why he wins his cases can it be disproved could if someone no. wanted to be a thorn could they figure out a way or is there just no way they can have a claim but the claim is lesser uh the claim by what we call by nature is the highest claim by legal is number three so they're on the lower ladder of their claim you ha always have the higher claim and all you got to do is claim it so basically what we're saying is no one can prove he's not a living man. Correct. Okay. I want to make that clear. Yes. 1939, Hague versus CIO. The first eight amendments have uniformly been held not to be protected from state action by the privileges and immunities of the clause of the 14th Amendment. So now after 38, everything starts flipping back. Anytime you're suing under the 14th Amendment due process clause under state rights, you're going to lose because you don't have the eight Bill of Rights. 1939, the court rules every person now liable for federal income taxes, person being defined under trading with the enemy. So again, homo homograph, what does the word person mean or what is it defined as? It is defined under the trading with the enemy. A person is defined as an individual, a trust, an estate, a partnership, or a corporation. Now, nowhere do I see it says it describes a, a real man. 
right? It describe all artificial entities. That's the all caps person, three names, is a corporation. So every person now liable for federal income taxes. All right. Your motor vehicle code of every state, person is defined. Who do they mean are under that statute? It's the same thing as trading with the Enemy Act. What well, their definition will always be artificial persons. It doesn't say anything about a natural person. So this is how they do it. This is the sleight of hand, the trick, the deceit. It's unreal. It's yes. unreal. Okay. The Buck Act, 1940, this allows any department of the federal government to create a federal area. Kind of like what they did in school zones, right? 100 feet or 1,000 feet around every school is now a federal zone. Well, federal zone means federal jurisdiction, right? That's why they always lure drug uh, sales within that 1,000 feet. So they're held under the penalties under federal law are much greater than under state. 1945 Administration Procedure Act, it admitted the estate. Here's the, this is very important. It admitted that the estates of the American nationals, which are the all caps straw man name, are the priority creations of the United States of America, which was the homeowners association who was running the federal government and provides that the American nationals, me, are unable to bring administrative claims against the United States, Inc., the federal government. This is why we have two court systems, the District Court of the United States and the U.S. District Court. The courts are ordered their employees not to recognize their standing and other titles of the American nationals. The basics of this case is that I, under my citizenship, can sue the federal government. I have standing just under this, their own rules. Okay, so there is a way. Got to get to the right court, though, not their court. This is where the courts of equity are. 1945, Hoover and Allison v. Evett affirmed that there are two distinct, different United States with two opposite forms of government. 1972, Milosevic versus Sears and Roebuck. We have two governments in America, one under the Constitution and a much greater one that is not under the Constitution. In short, the applicability of our Bill of Rights is in one of the crucial facts of American life today. In fact, American nationals are owed the Bill of Rights as they always have been. U.S. citizens are not owed the Bill of Rights. There it is. There it is. In 1982, U.S. free Slater, unless the defendant can prove he is not a citizen of the United States, the IRS has a right to inquire and determine a tax liability. 93, Jones versus Tamba, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment protects very few rights because it neither incorporates the Bill of Rights nor protects all rights of individual citizens. Instead, this provision protects only those rights peculiar to being a citizen of the federal government, 14th Amendment. It does not protect those rights which relate to state citizenship. 1996, the Austin Gary Cooper case. I'll quick do this one. We did it last time. This is where the judge admits to two different citizenships going on. Cooper says, I want a judicial determination judge. Am I an American citizen or am I a United States citizen? You're both. So the Department of Justice prosecutor reveals that United States citizenship is based strictly on contract. He pays Social Security tax and uses the Postal Service thus constitutes contractual agreement. He's a U.S. citizen. The natural flesh and blood man born in the United States is an American citizen and the artificial person, the all-caps entity, is the U.S. citizen. There's the big one, right? It's easy yes. to remember. Austin Gary Cooper, he's got a little famous person's half name there. 1996 yes. there, folks. Yep. 2015, Puerto Rico versus Sanchez Valley. The right to trace authority, federal law is sourced from the Congress. The difference between Congress passing laws for the territories and Congress passing laws for the union is political status. Uh, uh, uh. That's the issue. 
what is your political status? Everything revolves on the issue. Are you a union state citizen or a 14th Amendment citizen or a U.S. Uh, citizen, whichever we want to call it? Are you public right, or are you private? Okay, I'll burn through this last one and I got to wrap up for hour one. This is the most important one lately, 2018 U.S. versus Ortiz. In there, the court said that the people, going back to the Constitution, are not district citizens. The people are not subject to territorial jurisdiction. The people are aligned with beneficiaries of the official government of the United States. The people are exclusive only to birthright civilian judicial power of Article 3. The people are exclusively only to birthright civilian due process. The people are exclusively union citizen nationals of the several states. The people are exclusively private civilian citizens of the United States. Public rights belong to the people at large, while private rights belong to the individual. That's kind of where I'll leave it for now. All right. You've got time. You want to squeeze in nine and ten or you just want to jump? I want to jump. Just okay. Specifying, you know, I, I hope everyone understands there's time, there's two jurisdictions going on, public, uh, private, union, state, U.S. citizenship. But go ahead. All right. So let me wrap up. This is the end of hour one of episode where we're 274 here uh, with Jason Lindgren and pseudonym KL. You know some things now. This is all documented, and this is one of the big problems. All these people have grievances or this or that. This is the root of many things, and you learned a few things. Like, go ahead and try to bring some precedent before 1938 into a state court. See what happens to you. The point I'm making here is all this stuff will be posted on the other side, and this is simply due to volume. Also, the contact email will be given out on the other side, simply due to volume. At the end of the day, uh, the rubber meets the road on the other side. Uh, what you've learned here is a timeline of what's happened, how it's happened, why it's happened, which proves when you're talking about this, that, or the other thing. And again, uh, I think Jason and I both feel like, and you heard it right in this episode, we're starting to find agreement. So let me be clear. I'm not interested in dissent anymore. If you don't agree, that's fine. Don't agree. If you do agree, uh, I may be interested in hearing that. What we're looking for is there's a gazillion people out there drowning in the world. Is there a damn life preserver handy? It's what we're looking for. And we feel like we're starting to get there. So join us on the other side where truly the rubber meets the road in these law series we've been doing at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy healthy, and higher-minded end to this era. There it is. Cheers.
Faith is the enemy of knowing. Come!